Hey, you're listening to Program to Chill, a show about business, crime, parapolitics, and esoterica with your host, Jimmy Falangong. This is episode 2, Sullivan and Cromwell, part 2, or Deep State Psychology Havers. Now, today, this episode, I'm recording from a nice lakeside cabin at Lake Ontario, where I'm relaxing with some nice hiking, fishing, and sailing. The topic for today, again, is Sullivan and Cromwell, and more specifically, the Dulles Brothers. Today, we'll be covering their births up to around World War I. So, let's get started. I've never been one for what they call the psychological reading of history. I think we all know some extreme examples, like, for instance, the myth that Napoleon was so short that he had to go out and conquer most of the world uh, to compensate for it. Uh, the author Vladimir Nabokov said of Sigmund Freud, quote, I think he's crude, I think he's medieval, and I don't want an elderly gentleman from Vienna with an umbrella inflicting his dreams upon me, unquote. To a large extent, I, think that's, I don't think that's unreasonable. I think that uh, without denigrating the field of psychology as such, I think that there are a lot of common pitfalls. However, I do think that certain people are just begging for their actions to be interpreted in the light of psychology. And I think that the Dulles brothers are two of such people. They just had so much psychology. And, to be sure, we will still be applying the lens of class analysis, parapolitics, uh, so on, things of this nature. Uh, So it will not be an exclusively psychological reading of history today. John Foster Dulles joined Sullivan and Cromwell in 1911. His brother, Alan Dulles, joined the firm in 1926. Who was John Foster Dulles, who got an airport named after him? And who was Alan Dulles? John Foster Dulles was born in 1888 and died in 1959. He was best known for being the Secretary of State from 1953 to 1959. Alan Dulles was born in 1893 and died in 1969, and he was best known for being the Director of the CIA uh, from 1953 to 1961. A quote from Nancy Lissagore's book, A Law Unto Itself, says, John Foster Dulles, ultimately the most important lawyer of the new generation, joined Sullivan and Cromwell after being turned down by another law firm. Even to get into Sullivan and Cromwell, he had to rely on the influence of his grandfather, former Secretary of State John Watson Foster, who had known both founding partners. Unquote. For my money, John Foster Dulles just may be the most important lawyer of all time. Certainly, that could be true if you say the most important uh, lawyer in the United States, uh, and it is all the more true if you say, if you pair him with his brother Alan Dulles, say, and say these are the most two most important lawyers of all, of the United States. That is uh, an easy case to make. So let's get into their family history for a minute. And as a side note, I just want to say family history reveals quite a bit. I think that uh, 
someone's family obviously plays a huge role in the way they uh, interact with the world, the way they interpret the world. And I think that you can say that it's often messy, but uh, people are uh, both simultaneously products of their time and place and family and also independent actors. I don't think there's a way to dispute that. But I do think that if you look at someone's family history to a very large degree, you can uh, understand who they are and where they're coming from. And I would like to do that with the Dulles brothers. So the Dulles family were Scotch-Irish Protestants. uh, And the official stance of the Program to Chill podcast uh, is a strict no-race science policy with the sole exceptions of the British and the Scotch-Irish. No disrespect to Scotch-Irish listeners, but they are inordinately sociopathic. I am also particularly referring to the uh, Scotch-Irish in the United States. I'm joking about the race science, of course. Uh, The malevolence of the Scotch-Irish is clearly due to the experiences they went through in Scotland and Ireland, Uh, Obviously, that's not genetic. (laughs) Anyway, the Dulles family left Ireland in 1778, and they arrived in South Carolina. They established themselves as a prosperous slave-owning planters uh, there in South Carolina. They were very religiously minded, and several of them uh, joined the clergy. Uh, As a family, uh, they had close and ongoing ties to Princeton and Yale. John Foster Dulles and Alan Dulles were born to Alan Macy Dulles and Edith Foster. John Foster Dulles' middle name came from Edith Foster's maiden name in grand old wasp tradition. Alan Macy Dulles, their father, was a preacher and a theologian, and he was independently well-off, but they were not the rich side of the family, per se. The rich and more well-connected side was through Edith Foster, their mother. Edith Foster's father was John Watson Foster from Sus, Indiana. Uh, He was Secretary of State under Benjamin Harrison. People described John Watson Foster as a pillar of the Republican Party. Uh, Before he was Secretary of State, he was Minister to Mexico and then minister to Russia in the court of Alexander II. Edith Foster spent time in these diplomatic circles, meeting the High Society of Mexico and Russia. Uh, After being Secretary of State, I believe that John Watson Foster was also minister to Spain. John Watson Foster's main accomplishment, if you want to call it that, during his term as Secretary of State, was in directing the overthrow of the Hawaiian monarchy in 1893 and the subsequent annexation thereof. I quote from uh, Stephen Kinzer's book, The Brothers, President Harrison had discreetly encouraged white settlers to rebel against Queen Liliuokalani, and when they did, Secretary of State Foster endorsed the landing of the American troops at Honolulu to support them. The settlers proclaimed themselves Hawaii's new government, and the United States quickly recognized their regime, and the monarchy was no more. And I quote from uh, John Watson Foster here, 
quote, the native inhabitants had proven themselves incapable of maintaining a respectable and responsible government, Foster later wrote, and, quote, and lacked the energy or will to improve on the advantages which Providence had given them, unquote. Now, I am going to try to keep my editorializing uh, in programmed to chill fairly low, but I don't think I need to belabor the point that this was a pretty naked expression of U.S. imperialism and was more or less an outright theft uh, from the Hawaiian peoples. You don't have to agree with me to keep listening to the show, but like, I don't know, man. Like, maybe you should. So John Watson Foster was also one of the few U.S. officials who had promoted intelligence gathering. He began the practice of assigning military attaches to American legations and embassies, and he dispatched agents to European cities to examine the military libraries, bookstores, and publishers' lists in order to give early notice of any new or important publications or inventions or improvements in arms. He also established a a military intelligence division in his office, staffed by a military officer and a clerk to analyze their reports. He set out, uh, after after serving as Secretary of State and Minister to Spain, John Watson Foster set out not to become a lawyer like others, but to invent a new profession. Broker for corporations seeking favors in Washington and chances to expand abroad. It was an idea that fit the era. American farmers and manufacturers had so effectively mastered the techniques of mass production that they were producing far more than the United States could consume. Essentially, John Watson Foster became a proto-lobbyist, or I suppose you could just call it a lobbyist. Uh, The quote continues, They needed foreign markets to fend off ruin. Many also coveted resources from overseas. This required a muscular, assertive foreign policy that would force weaker countries to trade with Americans on terms Americans considered fair. With a career of diplomatic service behind him, capped by a term as Secretary of State, and with deep ties to the Republican Party, John Watson Foster was ideally placed uh, to help these American businesses. Corporations hired him to promote their interests in Washington and in foreign capitals. He was counsel to several foreign legations. The White House sent him on diplomatic missions. He negotiated trade agreements with eight countries and brokered a treaty with Britain and Russia regulating fur seal hunting in the Bering Sea. So if this wasn't enough, the Dulles brothers had another close family connection to another different Secretary of State, Robert Lansing, who served as Secretary of State for Woodrow Wilson from 1915 to 1920. As a Democrat, for what it's worth, uh, these families, uh, all of them extend across both parties. So Robert Lansing married Edith Foster's sister, Eleanor Foster. The Dulles brothers knew him as Uncle Bert, and they went on countless fishing trips together at Lake Ontario, just two Secretary of States and two young boys having a good time. I won't go too much into Lansing's career, but there is one interesting note, and I quote from uh, A Law Unto Itself, quote, 
When Robert Lansing became Secretary of State, the military intelligence division that John Watson Foster had started more than doubled in size to three officers and two clerks. With war on the horizon, Lansing moved decisively to expand it. By 1918, it had more than 1,200 employees who systematically analyzed intelligence from diplomats, military officers, the Secret Service, the Justice Department, and the Postal Inspection Service. Some of these employees also conducted what Lansing called investigations of a highly confidential character, unquote. I would love to know uh, what investigations of a highly confidential character uh, those must have been. So it was that two of Alan Dulles's beloved relatives, Grandfather Foster and Uncle Bert, actually laid the foundations for the American intelligence network that he would one day direct. I think it's very interesting and curious that this would be the case, although perhaps maybe not surprising. Either way, the Dulles side of the family provided the religion and the outlook on life, and the Foster side provided the connections for the Dulles brothers to take over the world. And perhaps not metaphorically, and perhaps not in jest. So let's talk about the Dulles brothers' silver spoon upbringing. Grandfather Foster loved the boys, John Foster Dulles and Alan Dulles, and he would spend his summers with them and arranged to borrow them for the winter months in his red brick mansion near DuPont Circle in Washington, D.C. There they had private tutors, servants, and, quote, a graying colored butler named Madison, unquote. They had the chance to sit through dinners with America's top political and business mandarins, like ambassadors, senators, cabinet secretaries, Supreme Court justices, and other figures including, but not limited to, William Howard Taft, Teddy Roosevelt, Grover Cleveland, William McKinley, Andrew Carnegie, and Woodrow Wilson. Uh, they, the Dulles brothers met all of these figures as young boys. They were positively steeped in not just the precepts, ideas, and perceptions that shaped America's ruling class, but also its style, vocabulary, and attitudes. Let's talk about their academic careers. So, Alan Dulles in particular seemed to just be a spy from birth. He thought, uh, and by his own re uh, retelling, he thought that his interest in espionage came from the experience of fishing. He had a quote where he said, finding the fish, hooking the fish, and playing with the fish, working to draw him in and tire him until he's almost glad to be caught in the net, uh, unquote. Uh, all of this interested him, and he explicitly drew the comparison to fishing uh, with espionage. Another telling behavior that Alan Dulles would do as a child was to sit at those illustrious dinners of his grandfather, uh, where he would listen to various famous uh, politicians speak with his grandfather. And then Alan Dulles would uh, sit in his bedroom and write reports of what he had just heard, summarizing the opinions of the statesmen whose company he had just left and seeking to analyze their characters. He was seven years old when he began doing this. Uh, 
He said, I was an avid listener, uh, he later recalled. And I think you can make the case that some people are just born to be spies. Or perhaps he was groomed to be a spy. Take your pick. John Foster Dulles was older than Alan Dulles by five years. And as a person, I would say he had even more psychology, as recounted by the Dulles family biographer Leonard Mosley. And I quote, In the autumn of 1904, when Foster was 16, he entered the all-male environment of Princeton, his father's alma mater, which had been founded by Presbyterians and was considered a kind of country club seminary. He was uncomfortable at first, partly due to an outburst of self-hatred fueled by an emotion of a kind he had never experienced before. John Foster Dulles developed a schoolboy crush, for he was only 16, on one of his fellow students, a wide-eyed rebel two years older than himself. The feeling was more than returned. It was an exhilarating experience until the moment when he discovered uh, from his adored older partner, that male relationships can also have their physical side. To a young man who had, so far, only embarrassingly, uh, you know, interacted with girls at parties, he was, this experience was devastating and a shocking revelation of what he knew from his Bible to be a shame and a sin. He conveyed this sense of degradation with such effect that the fellow student walked out of his room and left the college. Unquote. This story, although honestly probably a pretty common experience, especially at these boarding schools, sounds to me like something out of an Evelyn Waugh novel, or uh, perhaps like the Dead Poet Society movie. But my suggestion is that this experience, among many others, partially warped him into what he became in later years. To be clear, I am not suggesting that uh, his repressed homosexuality warped him. I think that perhaps uh, it was the shame and the uh, interplay between the shame and the repression that probably messed him up. An experience that I'm sure was uh, not... Singular, I believe a lot of people have gone through that. John Foster Dulles studied at Princeton, graduating second in the class of 1908 with a degree in philosophy. His thesis was entitled The Theory of Judgment, which won him a scholarship at the Sorbonne in Paris, where he studied for one year under the philosopher and Nobel laureate Henri Bergson. From Bergson, John Foster Dulles developed the concept of dynamic forces in eternal conflict with static forces. Bergson developed this dichotomy as a way to understand religion and morality, but Foster applied it to global politics, where he interpreted the cyclical struggle between the dynamic and static forces of society. During the 1930s, he began describing France and Britain as static societies interested only in defending what they had and predicted that the future would be shaped by three newly creative and dynamic powers, Germany, Italy, and Japan. These dynamic peoples, he wrote in one article, are determined to mold their states into a form which would permit them to take their destiny into, the, into their own hands and to attain that enlarged status which, under a liberal and peaceful form of government, had been denied them.
So basically, John Foster Dulles got into an abortion of a bastardized dialectics blended with race science in the form of sweeping mischaracterizations of entire nations, which is a pretty good start for someone destined to be Secretary of State. Also, to be clear, uh, before I get Henri Bergson shooters in my DMs, I'm talking crap on Dulles and not the philosopher. So in his junior year, Foster, John Foster Dulles, was brought along to the second Hague Peace Conference in the Netherlands by his grandfather to act as his secretary. Uh, At this peace conference, he got to watch and interact with the imperial government of China, which his grandfather represented as a proto-lobbyist in Washington. Uh, John Foster Dulles then attended George Washington University Law School and uh, then applied uh, to work at various law firms one of which being Sullivan and Cromwell. So on paper, John Foster Dulles did seem like a great candidate. He had an outstanding academic record, graduate study at the Sorbonne. He had some language skills with French, German, and Spanish. And he had a summer of high-level work at a major diplomatic conference. Unfortunately, he didn't graduate from an Ivy League law school, and there were very few at Sullivan and Cromwell who were ever hired unless they had attended an Ivy League uh, law school. Most candidates, however, don't have grandfathers who were secretaries of state with juice in the Republican Party, uh, much less close relations with two different secretary of states. John Foster Dulles had his grandfather, who had known Algernon Sullivan, appeal to William Nelson Cromwell, quote, Isn't the memory of an old association enough to give this young man a chance? He asked Cromwell in a letter. Well, isn't it indeed? Cromwell overruled his partners and hired John Foster Dulles. His starting salary was $12.50 a week, which his grandfather generously supplemented. And as always, remember, it's not what you know, but who you know. So, John Foster Dulles at Sullivan and Cromwell. John Foster Dulles got uh, noticed by Cromwell because he authored a paper saying that he... uh, United States ships should have free passage through the Panama Canal. Dulles contended that trips between American coasts through the canal should be considered domestic traffic and free of tolls, because that's the kind of thinking that Sullivan and Cromwell was all about. So, as a result of this paper, he started getting face time with Cromwell and better assignments. When World War I broke out, Sullivan and Cromwell sent John Foster Dulles all over Europe. Uh, his main job was to get war risk insurance, uh, to get his clients to buy war risk insurance uh, all over Europe. <clears throat> After that, the State Department uh, sent John Foster Dulles to Central America to scout which leaders might be persuaded to support the United States against the Central Powers. Dulles advised Washington to support the vicious dictator Federico Tinoco in Costa Rica because the dictator was anti-German. Dulles also got the dictator General Emiliano Chamorro, president of Nicaragua, 
to issue a proclamation suspending diplomatic relations with Germany, basically by leveraging the weight of the canal and the related uh, financial pressures. From there, Dulles was appointed captain in a military intelligence uh, working for the War Trade Board. Uh, in that capacity, he brokered deals in Spain and worked out an intricate legal system to secure 37 Dutch ships in American harbors without compromising Holland's neutrality. In fact, it was so complex that he wrote out uh, the agreement for the, the President of the United States to just sign because he didn't understand it. So, it would be a good time to catch up with Alan Dulles. Alan Dulles, of course, being five years junior to John Foster Dulles, and he did have to live in his brother's shadow for most of his life. Alan Dulles went to Princeton as well, where apparently he was a bit of a party boy. Uh, Stephen Kinzer's The Brothers said that he was plunged into a sparkling world of clubs, parties, and girls. This drove his, his father to distraction and set off angry arguments whenever he returned home. Alan Dulles's practice of last-minute cramming for exams always seemed to work, however, and like his brother, he graduated with distinction. Alan Dulles seemed to want out of his family's orbit to a greater degree than his brother, and therefore decided to go teach English in India for a time, right out, right out of school. While in India, he had quite an interesting time where he explored ancient ruins, uh, studied Hindi and Sanskrit, and even uh, heard a reading by the mystic poet Rabindranath Tagore, who was himself tied in with the Theosophical Society in England and India. more on the Theosophical Society in episodes to come. But apparently Alan Dulles, while there, also met the activist and lawyer Mudalal Nehru, as well as his son Jawaharlal Nehru, uh, who would become India's first prime minister, and his sister Vijaya, who would become a diplomat, and the first female president of the United Nations General Assembly. Uh, when, war, when World War I broke out, Alan Dulles was in India, and he, when he returned, he had an interest in espionage. So Uncle Bert introduced him to a British spy. This British spy, Captain Alex Gaunt, spoke of his work in the United States, which was, consisted of hiring Pinkerton detectives to monitor American ports and sending agents to infiltrate groups that he suspected of having anti-British leanings. Alan Dulles was transfixed. He thought that this Captain Gaunt was one of the most exciting men he had ever met. According to one account, he made up his mind that one of these days he would become an intelligence operative just like him. With that ultimate goal in mind, Alan Dulles took the Foreign Service Examination in 1916. He passed and joined the State Department, 
and set off on a decade-long career as a diplomat and spy. We will talk about Alan Dulles' career during World War I next episode. To wrap up, we need to talk about some major psychology. Like, for instance, marrying someone your brother was seriously dating, which is what John Foster Dulles did, and, I don't know, screaming at your wife until she ends up uh, curled up in a fetal ball, which is what Alan Dulles did. So, while at Princeton, Alan Dulles dated a lot of women, and he dated... Uh, one woman quoted as dainty, fragile. Uh, this woman was Janet Avery. Alan found Janet stayed and boring and moved on. Soon afterward, Janet became the object of his older brother's affection. The traits that led Alan Dutless to drop her, which was her steadiness, down-to-earth practicality, conventional attitudes, and lack of frivolity were just the ones Foster admired. Uh, reportedly, uh, when John Foster Dulles married Janet Avery, a nurse accompanied them on their honeymoon. He was just 24 years old while she was 21. For Alan Dulles, who was a serial philanderer who was reported by the New York Times, no less, to have had over a hundred extramarital affairs, uh, Alan Dulles found and married a one Martha Clover Todd, the daughter of a professor at Columbia, who is described as, quote, sensitive, delicately balanced, and prone to fits of melancholy, unquote. Although one does have to wonder if perhaps uh, the sensitivity and uh, fits of melancholy perhaps could be chalked up to the extramarital affairs. So let's see here. Their marriage was not a happy one. Uh, Alan Dulles once wrote to her suggesting that perhaps she ask friends for their advice on, quote, how to live with a queer duck like me, unquote. Which, I mean, I think we can assume he, he meant that he wanted her to be kinkier in bed, right? I mean, I'm not sure how else to read that. So Stephen Kinzer's book said that Alan Dulles proved unwilling or unable to give her the emotional support she needed. He had a fierce temper and often ranted at her. She would respond by curling her body into the fetal position and then when he was finished, silently leaving the, ho leaving the house to wander sometimes for hours. They contemplated divorce several times, but remained together until his death nearly 50 years later. Later in their marriage, Alan Dulles confronted her with an exorbitant bill from Cartier's, and she calmly explained that she had learned of his relationship with another woman and had bought herself an emerald necklace as compensation. She then announced that she intended to buy a new piece of jewelry each time she discovered one of his affairs, which, I mean, hey man, sounds like something at least she's getting out of this relationship, right? Say what you will, but there is no shortage of fodder here for a deep psychological reading of the Dulles Brothers. Alright, let's gather our notes here. What is the purpose of all this? Uh, what's the point in going through the family history 
looking at the nepotism and doing some discount uh, shrink analysis. I think that, as we'll eventually see, the two of them, the two brothers, set the course for the entire Cold War and for much of the United States' relationship with the entire world. Uh, looking at their neuroses and hang-ups together uh, isn't wasted when it's uh, two individuals as consequential as these two. And what can we learn uh, from this era of their lives? I mean, for one thing, I think it's pretty clear that any notions of meritocracy just go right out the window. It's always been about family connections, raw corporate power, wealth, and there's no reason to think that uh, they had any particular special mind for either statecraft or espionage. They did happen to succeed in both of those things, but uh, it's kind of a curious quirk of history that uh, it's not always easy to compare someone's performance uh, at something like being Secretary of State or, you know, Director of literally a secret agency. Uh, you can obviously benchmark them against their predecessors and their successors, but I think uh, when we really think about it, I really don't think that a different lawyer play, uh, from the same social class or a, you know from a different law firm would truly act in a drastically different manner than uh, the Dulles brothers. I think that that's true for a lot of monarchs. Uh, I think that it can be very instructive to look at when people break with patterns or uh, given behavior and perhaps perform at a remarkably high or low level. I think that uh, there can be real quirks and outliers, but that people generally just respond to the systems that they're placed in. And the notion that, you know, these people have any particular talents or gifts uh, beyond what they develop over a lifetime of being groomed for these positions, I think is just patently false. Even more than that, though, I think it's really instructive to look at what these people are actually doing in their roles. Uh, who are they helping? Who are they serving? What actions are they taking? And I think that uh, at every step, at Sullivan and Cromwell, and then in these lower-level positions of state, and eventually the higher-level positions of state, like Secretary of State and Director of the CIA, that basically what we can see them doing is advancing their own interests, obviously the interests of their family, the interests of their class, and then the interests of the businesses that they run. Uh, there's, you know, you can list off countless examples where you really can't make a case for, say, invading Cuba or joining World War I uh, as anything more than the best decision for Wall Street or the banks or the corporations. And, you know, I'm not trying to be a radical here, but I think that the history shows this. So next week, we are going to look at the Dulles brothers uh, exerting their power internationally, and we will examine what they choose to do with that power. So, as always, thank you for listening. 
I will post a thread of images. So look for that because that will be very helpful in putting names to faces and so on. So if you liked the content today, just recommend it to a friend, share it, things of this nature. I promise there will be more interesting content coming up. And I need to get on my way. I'm headed to Bern, Switzerland. So look out for that. Thank you for listening to Program to Chill with your host, Jimmy Fallon. God bless.